The prophet laments the people's disobedience, yet he himself is vindicated. He declares that he will be protected and his opponents will be overthrown. A reading from the book of the prophet Isaiah. The Lord God has given me the tongue of a teacher that I may know how to sustain the weary with the word. Morning by morning he wakens, wakens my ear to listen as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I did not turn backward. I gave my back to those who struck me, and my cheeks to those who pulled out the beard. I did not hide my face from insult and spitting. The Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who are my adversaries? Let them confront me. It is the Lord God who helps me. Who will declare me guilty? The word of the Lord. Please stand and sing Psalm 31, verses 9 through 16. Even though he is the incarnate word, Jesus has freely humbled himself, living a life of service. His obedience to God, even unto death, is the reason for his exaltion in heaven. A reading from the letter of Paul to the Philippians. 
Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born into human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The word of the Lord. You may be seated for the first part of the reading of the Passion. If you have a part with a a card with a highlighted part, please read that part when we come to it, and I'll indicate where you should stand. The Passion of Our Lord Jesus Christ According to St. Luke Then Jesus went out and made his way as usual to the Mount of Olives, accompanied by the disciples. When they reached the place, he said to them, Pray that you may be spared the hour of testing. He himself withdrew from them about a stone's throw, knelt down, and began to pray, Father, if it be thy will, take this cup away from me, yet not my will, but thine be done. And now there appeared to him an angel from heaven, bringing him strength. And in anguish of spirit he prayed the more urgently, and his sweat was like clots of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and came to the disciples, he found them asleep, worn out by grief. He said, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may be spared the test. While he was still speaking, a crowd appeared with the man called Judas, one of the twelve, at their head. He came up to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said, Judas, would you betray the son of a man with a kiss? When his followers saw what was coming, they said, Lord, shall we use our swords? And one of them struck at the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, Let them have their way. Then he touched the man's ear and healed him. Turning to the chief priests, the officers of the temple police, and the elders who had come out to seize him, he said, Do you take me for a bandit, that you have come out with swords and cudgels to arrest me? Day after day, when I was in the temple with you, you kept your hands off me. But this is your moment, the hour when darkness reigns. Then they arrested him and led him away. They brought him to the high priest's house, and Peter followed at a distance. They lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat around it, and Peter sat among them. A serving maid who saw him sitting in the firelight stared, and stared at him and said, This man was with him too. But he denied it and said, A little later, someone else noticed him and said, You also are one of them. No, I About an hour passed, and another spoke most, more strongly still. Of course, this fellow was with him. He must have been. He is a Galilean. Man, I do not know what you are talking about. At that moment, while he was still speaking, a cock crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the Lord's words, Tonight before the cock crows you will disown me three times. The men who were guarding Jesus mocked at him. They beat him, they blindfolded him, and they kept asking him, 
Now, prophet, who hit you? Tell us that. And so they went on heaping insults upon him. When day broke, the elders of the nation, chief priests and doctors of the law, assembled, and he was brought before their council. They said, Tell us, are you the Messiah? If I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I ask questions, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of Almighty God. You are the Son of God, then? It is you who say I am. Need we call further witnesses? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. With that, the whole assembly rose, and they brought him before Pilate. They opened the case against him by saying, We found this man subverting our nation, opposing the payment of taxes to Caesar, and claiming to be Messiah, a king. Pilate asked him, The words are yours. Pilate then said to the chief priests and the crowd, But they insisted, His teaching is causing disaffection among the people all through Judea. It started from Galilee and has spread as far as the city. When Pilate heard this, he asked if the man were a Galilean, and on learning that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he remitted the case to him, for Herod was also in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, having heard about him. He had long been wanting to see him and had been hoping to see some miracle performed by him. He questioned him at some length without getting any reply, but the chief priests and lawyers appeared and pressed the case against him vigorously. Then Herod and his troops treated him with contempt and ridicule and sent him back to Pilate dressed in a gorgeous robe. That same day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Till then, there had been a standing feud between them. Pilate now called together the chief priests, counselors, and people and said to them, But there was a general outcry, Away with him, give us Barabbas. This man had been put in prison for a rising that had taken place in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them again in his desire to release Jesus, but they shouted back, Crucify him, crucify him. For a third time he spoke to them, But they insisted on their demand, shouting that Jesus should be crucified. Their shouts prevailed, and Pilate decided that they should have their way. He released the man they asked for, the man who had been put in prison for insurrection and murder, and gave Jesus up to their will. As they led him away to execution, they seized upon a man called Simon from Cyrene, on his way in from the country, put the cross on his back, and made him walk behind Jesus carrying it. Great numbers of people followed, many women among them, who mourned and lamented over him. Jesus turned to them and said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. No, weep for yourselves and your children. For the days are surely coming when they will say, Happy are the barren, 
the wombs that never bore a child, the breasts that never fed one. Then they will start saying to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if these things are done when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Would you please stand? There were two others with him, criminals who were being led away to execution. And when they reached the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, and the criminals with him, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. They divided his clothes among them by casting lots. The people stood looking on, and their rulers jeered at him. He saved others. Now let him save himself, if he is God's Messiah, his chosen The soldiers joined in the mockery and came forward offering him their sour wine. They said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was an inscription above his head which ran, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there with him taunted him. But the other rebuked him. I tell you this, today you shall be with me in paradise. By now it was about midday, and a darkness fell over the whole land, which lasted until three in the afternoon. The sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus gave a loud cry and said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And with these words he died. The centurion saw it all and gave praise to God, saying, The crowd who had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had happened, went home beating their breasts. His friends had all been standing at a distance. The women who had accompanied him from Galilee stood with them and watched it all. You may be seated. The trouble with preaching on Palm Sunday is that you have to compete against the liturgy. If it had been nice today, we would have started in the garden, but as it is, we start in the parish hall for the blessing of the palms, and then we process into the church waving our palms with the stirring music of bagpipes. We get caught up in the drama of Jesus' last week, and then we get in here, and from that great excitement, we go to a reading of the Passion. Some of you get to take parts of Pilate and Peter, almost designed to make us feel guilty, and we all get to shout, crucify him, crucify him. Boy, if you want to feel guilty, just come today. But what is the reading supposed to do to us or for us, besides make us feel guilty or sad or shocked or angry? I remember as a kid, come this time of year, I used to think of Jesus on the cross thinking of me, and of all of my sins, and all of those horrible things that I had done, and looking at me with compassion. And then I would feel really insignificant. But as I got older, I began to wonder, how was someone dying on the cross supposed to fix the things that I had done? 
did the little lies, the petty thefts, the arguments with my family, all of those things that I used to think were so horrible, really deserve that? And how was that going to fix those things? Shouldn't I be doing that by trying to make them right? I also used to try and imagine myself willing to die for some reason, but I think I'm too much of a coward. I could never imagine myself doing that for someone else. I couldn't even imagine myself being a martyr, willing to go to my death in loyalty to the faith. Partly, I suppose, because I just couldn't imagine a situation in which that was ever likely to happen. In Crestwood, would that ever happen to us? I don't think so. So what are these readings supposed to do for us? This past Wednesday was the 30th anniversary of the assassination of Oscar Romero, Archbishop of El Salvador, a word which means the savior, interestingly enough. Oscar Romero was gunned down by a band of government soldiers in a church as he was celebrating Eucharist. He had just elevated the chalice when the soldiers opened fire and he died across the altar. He was a problem for the government of El Salvador because he spoke out against the displacement of the small farmers, the campesinos, from their land in favor of large corporate farmers, mostly American, who farmed coffee and sent it to the United States. He didn't start out his life as a radical. In fact, the government of El Salvador was thrilled when the Pope appointed him as archbishop. He had a reputation for being very conservative, He was from a rich, connected family. Surely he was going to be on the side of the government, they thought. However, a seminary friend of his was gunned down by a death squad for trying to organize a group of campesinos to squat on land that had once been theirs. And Romero went to see the brutally murdered body of his friend and began to wonder, where was Christ in this picture? And so he began to speak out against the government. He even visited President Jimmy Carter and asked him to end the U.S. support for the government in El Salvador. But Jimmy Carter was worried that a non-business-friendly government would take its place, and so he did not listen to Romero's pleas to stop sending aid to the government in El Salvador. So Romero got to be a real pain, such a pain that the government needed to be rid of him. He had been instructed not to preach justice anymore, not to preach against the government or against the death squads or against the land takeovers. And he was preaching in a hospital chapel. The soldiers were standing at the back as a warning for him not to preach what he'd been told not to preach, but he preached anyway. They tried to stop him then from celebrating the Eucharist, but he went to the altar anyway, and they shot him many times. But he got there by degrees. He started out soft, perhaps even cowardly and quiet, but he saw abuses that made his blood freeze, and so he spoke. The prophet Isaiah, in the passage we heard today, speaks for the whole people of Israel. God has told them over and over and over again that they are hard of hearing and hard of heart. They won't listen. And so God has sent them into exile. And the prophet says, okay, now we're listening. We have not turned away from insult, from shame, from those who pull the beard. And we are discovering that we are right. 
Who can accuse us? God is for us. Like Romero, they slowly began to get it. God is on the side of the persecuted, even themselves when they are persecuted. But it was the phrase insults and spitting that caused my attention. I have not turned away my face from insult and spitting. This past week in Washington, D.C., we have witnessed an ugly spectacle. As Congress was voting on the health care bill, health care reform bill, demonstrators, both those for the bill and those against it, stood outside the Capitol and hurled insults at each other and at congressmen. A black representative, a minister in a church, was called the N-word. People were spit on. The FBI had to brief representatives about safety because of the death threats against them on account of this vote. Whether you like the vote or not, don't you think this has gone just a little bit too far? I have not turned my face from insults and spitting, says the prophet. Who would we stand with? For whom or for what would we be willing to risk insult? Luke portrays a Jesus serenely in control of the events that unfold in the Passion. He asks forgiveness for his persecutors. He tells the women not to weep for him. He welcomes the repentant thief into paradise, and he calmly hands over his spirit. Gone are the words that Mark puts on his lips, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knows what he must do, and he walks calmly on that way. But he didn't get there overnight. This came from a lifetime of commitment to God's justice. We will never face persecution for our faith. But for whom or for what would we risk insult? Romero, probably like me, couldn't have imagined himself as a martyr for his faith when he started out or even when he was made bishop. But he became convinced of the wrong that he saw. Are we willing to stand against insult, to call a halt to the kind of abusive political discourse we've been witnessing? Would we go and stand between the crowds of protesters on both sides of this and call for calm? And maybe it doesn't even require that much of us. Would we be willing to stop a friend from using a foul name for someone else? Would we speak, gently even, against a racial joke? Would we drop a dime if we saw spousal abuse going on? Would we stand up for a Matthew Shepard? I have not turned my face from insult and spitting. But watch out. You start with that kind of thing, and you never know where it will end. What does the gospel ask of us? Where does God stand in the world around us? Do we stand there? Amen.